The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for an interview with Dr. Donald Kramer, the chairman of Noblis Health Corp., trading on the TSX under the symbol NHC.to. Noblis Health strategically partners with physicians in the development and management of ambulatory surgical centers, or ASCs, with the mission of providing superior medical care, increased patient satisfaction, and lower cost for healthcare delivery. Noblis, under its previous name, Northstar Healthcare, recently acquired Athos Health for $34 million. Athos, based in Dallas, focused on the marketing and delivery of specialized healthcare services in seven states. Dr. Kramer, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ellis. Looking forward to working with you. If you don't mind, review your background with our audience. Ellis, I'm a medical doctor who believes that we're here to serve the needs of our patients. I've been fortunate to train at some of the most prestigious institutions in our country, Stanford and Harvard, and the medical care that's rendered at these very large medical centers is outstanding. But the patient experience has been so often institutionalized. And over the last 25 years or so that I've been in medical practice, I focused upon creating care models that offer patients the same level of sophistication and standards that we have at the prestigious university hospitals, but also are focused in offering our patients an experience that's really second to none. My own training is as an anesthesiologist, or in Canada they call us anesthetist, who care for patients with severe and chronic pain. I'm a chronic pain medicine specialist. Patients place a great deal of trust into physicians and certainly into the hands of myself and colleagues. That's why I've been so proud to work with the team at Nobilis because they absolutely share my commitment to our patients. What has been your vision for Nobilis moving forward? In addition to being an anesthesiologist, I've been a partner in a development team that's now developed over 40 surgical centers and surgical hospitals, and I've had a chance to see firsthand how technology has really moved our industry forward so that now surgery is much less invasive than it was 25 years ago. Scopes have largely replaced scalpels, so if you've ever had knee surgery or shoulder surgery, you know that those joint repairs are done through scopes, and we really only open a joint if we're going to replace a joint. As a result, patients have quicker recovery times, better outcomes, and better healing. Now we're seeing the same technology technology allowing surgeons to operate on spines through small scopes rather than through large incisions or even taking colons out, believe it or not, through scopes. And in the area of spine surgery, we're now doing disc replacements through scopes. So if you mix that technologic development with the fact that there are simple surgical solutions for what have been chronic medical problems, such as obesity, the opportunities for Noblis to offer these solutions are enormous. 
So as I referred to chronic obesity as an issue for which our patients have largely struggled unsuccessfully to overcome, they can often be cured with a weight loss procedure that takes less than an hour, and our patients go home the same day. Many patients who suffer from chronic back pain or migraine headaches, two of the most common widespread and debilitating conditions, can frequently be cured by repairing a problem through a minimally invasive and relatively simple procedure. That must come as a relief, potentially, to many afflicted by these pain-related ailments. Think of it this way. Pain is always carried by a nerve up to our brain where that pain signal is recognized. Often that pain signal starts from something pressing on a nerve. It may be in the foot, it may be in the back, or in the case of headaches, the nerves in the scalp, sort of like a thorn sticking a nerve. And if you can remove the thorn, then the pain goes away. That is so much of what we do in these surgical procedures where we remove the offending thorn and the results are profound. We get tremendous relief of chronic pain with a simple procedure through a scope. Certainly that's contributed to the success of Noblest Surgical Centers. I imagine that the positive experience that your patients are having as a result has also spawned much of the growth in the business as well. Right. That's absolutely true. Nobilis is a successful company in a very successful industry. When I graduated medical school 34 years ago, only 15% of all the surgeries were done on an outpatient basis. That means patients going home on the same day as the procedure. Last year in the United States, more than 70% of all patients having surgery go home the same day. And in my own field of anesthesia, it's no longer necessary for someone to spend a night in the hospital to recover from their anesthetic. So in terms of the growth of the industry, it's been moved forward by the growth of technology and the simplicity of our procedures. But at Noblest, the growth of our company has occurred largely because we've offered patients just a fantastic experience. Which, as you stated earlier in this interview, has always been the foundation of your initial goals. My motivation has always been to give my patients that great experience, something which I was unable to control when I provided care at the large general hospital. And that's why I have preferred the dedicated outpatient center or the small boutique surgical hospital, if you may. There are fewer administrative procedures for either myself or my patients. The cases never get bumped for emergencies. And superbug infections are very, very rare in the outpatient facility as compared to the general hospital. It's almost like the difference of flying on a private jet versus economy class on a big plane. My motivation has never changed, but the patient experience just seems to get better and better year after year at the dedicated outpatient facilities. What are your responsibilities specifically with regard to being chairman of Nobilis? Well, beyond the oversight and fiduciary responsibilities that are inherent for any company that publicly trades their stock, my goal is to help the management and the execution of their strategic plan. In the case of Nobilis, I'm colored by my roots as an anesthesiologist, whereby my job has always been to be best supporting actor to our surgeons and to their patients. I felt that if I can do that well in a management organization, then we would continue to enjoy our reputation among our peers as the preferred hospitals and surgical centers for our surgeons and for their patients. The model which we have adopted over the years has been heavy in marketing, which quite honestly is fascinating to me. There's no doubt that healthcare is an industry which is rapidly transforming. We're seeing a rapid move to consumerism, whereby our patients are deciding for themselves which doctors they want to see and the care that they want to receive. 
patients are increasingly educated about their medical conditions and they're wanting to be treated as partners in making decisions. Often when a patient sees me, they may have researched out their condition on the internet or through support groups that are in the internet and they know more about the issues of their conditions than I had seen 10 or 15 years ago. That is the noblest view towards marketing. We're trying to help our consumers or our patients develop an awareness of their choices and we do that by providing them with the latest data and information and hopefully that builds a relationship of trust and when they're ready to seek care or at least a second opinion that they look to a noblest doctor. In the case of the noblest branded programs such as our North American Spine or Migraine Treatment Centers, we're told that the patient experience and the comprehensive nature of our care far exceeds what's offered anywhere else. Of that I'm very, very proud. So for example, the average number of contacts that a patient may have with our patient educators, or we call them patient coordinators, is typically more than 10 discussions prior to coming into the office. Most physicians' offices are not set up to offer patients that type of portal of interface, that level of education and insight in helping patients decide what choices they want to make for their own care. So you've been basically changing the way medicine is being practiced in this arena. That's a question of our core mission and values, of which I'm very proud, which is that we are largely educators in helping our patients make decisions for themselves. How do you maintain a high quality of service as Noblest grows? As the physician on the leadership team, that's my personal responsibility. We need to be sure that we continue to deliver on the promise of our brand, and we've embedded a very patient-centric view of life in every one of our employees in our organization. Our leaders have to be brand ambassadors, and we've created an environment that's allowed us to attract top surgeons. For example, our orthopedic surgeons are the surgeons for many of the major league sport teams. Many of our surgeons work as instructors at the medical schools, and they've allowed us to attract some of their top graduates to practice at the noblest facilities. We need our surgeons to act as champions in helping us recruit the other surgeons and physicians that would make them proud. That's been our winning formula. Dr. Kramer, it's been a pleasure to have been able to speak with you today. Thanks so much for joining me on the program. You're so kind. Thank you for allowing me. I've been chatting with Dr. Donald Kramer, chairman of Noblest Health, trading on the TSX under the symbol NHC. Type in NHC. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on iTunes. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'll be speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Wellgreen Platinum, trading in the U.S. under the ticker symbol WGPLF. Wellgreen Platinum is a North American mining, exploration, and development company focused on the active advancement of its 100% owned Wellgreen PGM nickel copper project and taking it toward production. Located in the Yukon, the Wellgreen project is one of the largest undeveloped PGM or Platinum Group Metals deposits outside of South Africa and Russia. Greg, welcome to the program. Great to be back. You have some particularly exciting news that I'd like to share with our audience. 
Wellgreen just released a PEA, a positive independent preliminary economic assessment on the Wellgreen PGM nickel project. It states that when you go into production, the company will generate approximately 209,000 ounces of platinum, palladium, and gold, along with 73 million pounds of nickel and 55 million pounds of copper for the first 16 years of operation. How much cash flow will that bring into the company? To put that in context, if you're producing over 200,000 ounces of platinum, platinum, and gold, that makes you like number two in comparison with, uh, say, Stillwater in Montana outside of South Africa or Russia. So it's a very significant level of platinum group metal production. And on a nickel basis, you'd be a fairly significant producer of nickel as well. Combine that all together at kind of current prices, and you're looking at something along the lines of $300 million a year in operating cash flow over those 16 years. On top of that, believe it or not, that's only mining about 30% of our current resource. And so when you bring in the other 70%, which we've laid out as an opportunity in our study we've just published, that adds another 30 years of mine life, so stretching the life out to over 50 years of operation at those kind of production levels. With this compelling news just released... What is your next step with regard to Wellgreen? Well, this study is really the culmination of two years of work. We've raised close to $40 million over the last two years. Money has gone into the ground for drilling, for engineering, for metallurgical testing. And so this really is a substantive update and very detailed study project and, and lays out that it's, it's quite robust uh, in comparison with those similar projects. You know, our rates of return on this are in the mid-20s and, and even low 30s, depending on your metal price deck that you use. And so this project, it really stands out. And we've got a number of existing shareholder investors that have approached us to continue to assist the company to move forward. We've got new mining-focused large groups, uh, including you know some of the producers and smelting groups that are expressing interest in helping to take the project to the next level. With this PEA and with the fact that we ended the year with almost $10.5 million in cash, we're in great shape to launch into the pre-feasibility level of study, refining these studies that we've just put out, and being able to move towards de-risking the project and demonstrating its potential future cash flow. Is this potentially one of the largest stories in the Yukon, if not North America? Well, the, the project, as is currently envisioned, starts out at 25,000 tons per day, which is not a huge operation, but it is a good-sized mine, and at the expansion phase in year five and six, it would go to about 50,000 tons per day. So it would become, at that stage, one of the larger operations in the region. There's several that are bigger, but this would be quite sizable. And in terms of platinum group metals and nickel specifically, it would be one of the biggest outside of the high political risk areas of, of South Africa and Russia. Now, the cost of production is considerably less than those other sensitive political risk jurisdictions that you just referred to, right? Yeah, most of the world's platinum and platinum is produced from deep underground mines in either South Africa or Russia. Combined, they're about 90% of the world's production. And those metals are used for catalytic converters is the number one use, but other industrial uses, investment value, and jewelry. But the catalytic converter market is really the biggest market. With such a heavy concentration of those metals being produced in those high political risk jurisdictions, a project like Wellgreen really stands out. This is something that I think really industry is going to be looking for sources of new metal with the excellent infrastructure that we have, the paved highway and the existing ports to the south of the project. We're really poised to be able to advance this project and see steady interest from people in terms of financing and advancing the project. So you've had conversations with both large producers and potential offtake candidates as well. Yeah, we're already seeing very significant interest in terms of both groups that might want 
want to purchase the concentrate products where the metals are, are shipped for smelting, as well as larger producers that are either focused in the base metal business or the base metal and PGM or just on the PGM side of things. This stage, that's pretty encouraging to see that level of interest in the company. If an entity were to come along and look at you as a takeout candidate, how would you respond to that? Well, it's a bit early for us to be looking at that. I mean, on a valuation basis right now, we are trading at a very attractive valuation from an investor's point of view, but we're nowhere near the ultimate potential valuation that we could see. On an enterprise value per ounce today, the precious metal producers are trading at about $200 an ounce on the ground. The advanced development stage companies are trading at around $50 per ounce of measured and indicated resource. That's your highest confidence resource. And the early development stage are averaging around 20 dollars per ounce. Well Green today is trading at around $4 an ounce if you don't include value for our base metals, nickel and, and copper. And if you include value for those, we're trading around $2 an ounce. So the opportunity for capital appreciation as we advance the project, de-risk it through the next couple of stages is quite significant compared to those average market valuations that you see for other comparable companies today. I'm sure that you as the CEO of Wellgreen feel that your company's share price is potentially undervalued considering everything that we've discussed over the past few weeks. Why do you believe that's the case? If you take a look at these valuations, they reflect the prevailing kind of sentiment in the metals market. They also reflect the stage of development and risk that you see for your various projects. Now, based on the fact that we've just completed this major economic study and we're moving into a pre-feasibility, if we look at the average valuations for companies at pre-feasibility being closer to $50 per measured indicated ounce, then we are substantially undervalued by that metric. I think if you look at the economics that are published in this PEA update and you apply those on kind of a a price to net asset value or or some other future cash flow metric, I think you could argue that the shares are very attractively valued from an investor's point of view in that there's excellent potential to see those values increase over time. Greg, what do you see going forth in the coming year with regard to news flow for the Wellgreen project? Well, the company ended the year with ten and a half million dollars in cash, so we're in an excellent position to launch into the next round of studies. We're looking to probably start off our first phase of activity in the spring on the project. So there should be a good flow of news, both from drilling, engineering, metallurgical testing, and we think that we're cautiously optimistic that the overall tone of the market for the metals complex is looking better than it has in a while, and that once we start to see investor interest returning to a sector that's gone through a three to four year bear market, that could be very, very attractive for investors to look at high-quality names that are de-risking and in safe political jurisdictions like a well-green platinum. Greg, again, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. I look forward to more updates in the near future. Thanks for having us. We look forward to updating you again soon. I've been speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Wellgreen Platinum, trading on the TSX under the symbol WG and on the OTCQX as WGPLF. That's WGPLF. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Go to the website right now, ellismartreport.com. Today I'm speaking with Doug Diamond, the president and CEO of Gatekeeper Systems Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GSI.V. Gatekeeper employs integrated high-resolution video, voice, and GPS mapping for extreme mobile applications, increasingly vital for the documentation of law enforcement activity, as well as other security-focused efforts across North America. 
Doug, welcome to the program. How would you define gatekeeper's market? The security market in general is divided up into a number of segments. All of those segments are expected to grow to approximately $23 billion by 2017. So it's a large market, and it is growing. We reside in the mobile market. We define mobile as really anything that is moving. That could range from a school bus. There's 550,000 yellow school buses in North America, and there's 30 to 50,000 of those buses manufactured every year. There's approximately 120,000 transit buses. There's taxis. There's aircraft, Coast Guard patrol boats, anything that moves, including law enforcement personnel and security personnel. We believe, based on the numbers that we've seen, there's approximately 30 million law enforcement and security personnel that at some point in time will be wearing body cameras. So that's really where our focus is. We are laser focused on those particular niche markets, including transit, school buses, transport, law enforcement, both with their vehicles and officers, as well as aircraft, Coast Guard, Department of Defense. Let's focus on the growing potential law enforcement aspect of your business. You touched upon that just now. With the recent controversy in areas such as Ferguson, Missouri, and New York City, I would imagine that there would be great interest in gatekeepers' body camera technology across the country. We've just recently introduced, I'm talking about in the last 12 months, a new high-definition body camera. There's been a lot of press in and around the events that have come out of Ferguson. That's driving a significant amount of press across the country. Gatekeeper had introduced the high-definition definition body camera for not only law enforcement, also security personnel in school districts, prisons, hospitals, corrections, a number of different marketplaces. Well, certainly the potential law enforcement market is huge. And as you said, law enforcement activities are seeing a great deal of press right now. Let's review another large market that you also addressed and are already seeing success in, school buses and your student protector system. Well, the student protector is a high-speed license plate reading system that was specifically designed to install on the outside of school buses to deter stop-arm violations. Stop-arm violations occur when a school bus comes to a stop. The stop-arm is engaged and children are either boarding the bus getting on or off. It's during those times that very dangerous situation can occur, and that's when a car will pass that stop arm. In the U.S. this year, there's a projected 15 million stop arm violations, and what's happened in the past is that kids have either been hit by these vehicles, there's been deaths that have occurred near misses. It's really driven new legislation in various states that allow counties or cities to use video from a school bus video system to issue a citation. How does this translate into prosecution of these violations and revenue for the company. Gatekeeper embarked on a development project approximately a year ago to design a unique system that can record a evidence pack whereby when such an incident occurs, our system captures the license plate, the vehicle uh, identification, GPS coordinates of where the bus was. We also record some other metadata that really creates this evidence pack for the county and the city as evidence to be used in court to issue a citation. Now, the average citation in various states ranges anywhere from $250 to $750. Some states are a little higher, some are a little bit lower, but on average, that's the range. So literally, in a short period of time, there's been this new market category that is created that has the potential to grow into a billion-dollar market category. 
and you already have a good footing in the market. Gatekeeper had seen this. We've been in the market for quite some time. We have approximately 3,500 customers in what's considered the K-12 market, the kindergarten, the grade 12 market. We're pretty excited about a number of factors. Number one, our technology can be used to increase safety in and around the school buses by deterring these incidents from happening. And then number two, of course, depending on what business model our customers choose, one of which is a um, the systems are paid for by the revenue that's collected from these citations. The equipment can be free of charge to the school district. So for example, Gatekeeper will provide the equipment, install it on the school buses, manage the entire program, and we can share in the revenue with the school district, the county, or the city, and of course ourselves. With Gatekeeper stock at near 19 cents, there's potentially a great deal of upside for the possible investor. Yeah, I'm a big believer. The last company I was involved in was about the same size as this one. It was eventually bought out by Honeywell for almost $11 a share. We believe that we are a great potential investment at these prices. And here's why. Gatekeeper Systems has a wide product line and we're engaged in several markets, one of which is the student protector. Well, Doug, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with the President and CEO of Gatekeeper Systems Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GSI.V. That's GSI.V. More questions? Contact Gatekeeper toll-free at 888-666-4833. That's 888-666-4833. And find a link to their website on the homepage of ours, ellismartinreport.com. We follow those that like to be followed. Follow them yourself at ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Mark. Join me for a conversation with a frequent guest of the show, David Morgan, the Silver Guru, an expert on money, metals, and mining, also a lecturer and an author. Mr. Morgan has written Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, available on Amazon.com. His website is TheMorganReport.com. David, welcome back to the program. Yeah, it's good to be with you. Now, I'm not going to ask you to make any predictions with regard to future prices of gold and silver. Over the course of the last two or more years, you have referred to the last bull run. This will be a time where gold rises to parabolic heights, and any public company with the name gold in it, whether it's the real deal or a wannabe deal, will rise up to the occasion in the market. Do you have a sense that this is coming anytime soon or shortly? No, not shortly. I think we're probably a couple years away, but I think it's absolutely developing now, and I will say that I'm very certain that 2015 will be a year that we work our way higher in gold. Mark Faber's predict about 30% move up in gold, and I agree with that. I think that's probably uh, maybe a bit conservative. Time will tell. And if you look at how silver moves relative to gold, that might suggest a 50% move in silver, which means that the gold-silver ratio would narrow, which is what I expect. So you can look at silver going from, say, 15 or 16 up to maybe oh, 24, 25, 26. I'm looking really for about the 26 level by the end of the year or somewhere in, in between. And that's, of course, without my famous caveat of a black swan event that would take these metals far higher very quickly. Well, that's a conservative estimate based on the numbers we were seeing in 2012 and 2013, isn't it? It is. I've been beat up for being wrong. You know, I said it would take probably two or three years for silver to work through that big move from 19 up to 48. It took four. We're not absolutely certain the bottom is in. I'm 99% sure that it is. 
came in early November of 2013. But there's what's called overhead resistance. There's a lot of stale bulls out there. Even the physical side, they're tired of the word silver. They wish, you know, they over-invested or invested the wrong time or whatever. So as the market moves out, they'll sell into it or get rid of their position or part of it or whatever. So that's called overhead resistance. It exists in any market, stocks, commodities, whatever. So there's a bit of work to be done, I would say. And I definitely want to stay more on the conservative side. I mean, not that I've ever been crazy wild or whatever, but it's taken longer than I expected, to be honest. I thought three years would be about the max. It's taken four. But there are so many reasons, fundamentally and technically, for the markets to go much, much higher. And I think that this Swiss referendum that didn't get asked was a very important turning point because what I said and some others was that it just got the gold situation in the consciousness of a lot of people. It didn't pass, but what did happen last week was that the Swiss unpegged from the euros just about anybody in the sector now knows, and that had almost the same effect as passing the referendum would have had. So this is something where the banker's bank, I mean, the Swiss are famous for their banking, have basically exited out of the euro. The announcement from Draghi and company was that they are going to QE quite a bit. And, you know, gold and silver up against that announcement. So the fundamentals continue to get better. And I think that, again, maybe it is conservative. Well, actually, you, know, you know me. You get uh, more than reports. So you see it every month. And, you know, we do updates. We put out flash alerts. We have that special service that is the mid-level service, which is our most popular. And just puts up software on your computer that pops up and says that we have an update or we have an alert or whatever, it's right in your face. I don't know if anybody in the industry, including, you know, Casey Research, the Dines Letter, Richard Russell, anybody that has that service that's provided for such a modest fee and gets kind of right in your face and says, look, you know, there's something important going on with one of these companies or something important going on with the market. David just did an update on the market, and it's not always just gold and silver. I mean, we look at the bond market. We look at the U.S. dollar, et cetera. There's a lot there. We do our best. I think it's going to be a good year, not a great year, but time will tell maybe, you know, this thing will take off like crazy. I mean, Bull Pony that we interviewed on our Mastermind series, it was super bullish and expected a huge run-up in December, proved inaccurate. I agreed with him when I was at the Silver Summit that the biggest move is ahead, which is how you let off the show, Ellis, and thank you for that, and I still believe that. Our time frames are different. Bo is of the opinion that it was, like, imminent. I'm of the opinion it's going to take a couple years, maybe three, but nonetheless, we did agree, and I had one of my subscribers come up in the Vancouver show and basically uh, pinned me down a little bit and said, well, you agreed with Bo, and I said, in some aspects, yes, in some aspects, not so much, and I went over that. It's always good to get the feedback from everybody, because that's true community. And what I realized was, even though I knew what I meant, he didn't understand what I said, which might sound kind of dumb, but that's exactly what took place. So yes, the biggest move is ahead of us this year, probably not. 2016, yes, probably near the end. But between now and then, by the bottom, buy in here, buy under the cost of production. Same thing for gold. I mean, gold and silver for many mining companies are under the cost of production. So be a savvy investor and accumulate now. I heard a rumor at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference that Goldcorp picked up Probe, and then you confirmed it through one of the email alerts via the Morgan Report that you referred to earlier. Let's talk about the significance of this. Well, they're a very savvy company. It's one of our top tier. It's one that you can hardly lose money on if you have a long-term perspective. They've got great management. They continue to acquire assets. So we're just very happy that they're so well run. And, you know, there's been some remarks about some of the write-downs on some of these companies. But if you look at it from a financial aspect, what their cash flow is, what their balance sheet is, what they own, what they have, everything that we have in the top tier 
we're, we're not uh, ashamed of. They're all really in very healthy financial shape. So certainly, you know, companies allowed to take a right down. We look at a kind of a, a tax situation where they're pretty healthy regardless. So we're not upset by anything that's going on with the top tier sector. Our mid tiers are pretty solid. And the speculations are just that, you know, there are some that are still doing well and some that we wish you never heard the names of, but that's not deliberate. And of course, we teach everybody to bet little to win big on those and to spread out in that sector. And that's the way to do it. I mean, there's no other way that I know of because no matter how good these stories are, sometimes the stories don't work out. From what I've seen recently, and it was certainly true in the past, any movement in the market related to gold is story-driven. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think so. It's on the panel at the end. You may have caught it, maybe not. It was kind of the precious metals outlook. We had a gentleman from TV, Toronto Dominion Bank. Your Dean was on there with us, Peter Spina and myself. And all of us across the board were bullish, which you would expect in a gold show. But they got a couple of bankers, and I think they're more conservative probably than I am. And I'm not flaming, just jumping up and down perma-bull. I mean, all markets go up and down. I just called a top at 48. I did recommend people hedge. Bob Moriarty acknowledged that at the Silver Summit in October but I drift off and come back. Across the board, bullish. No one was overly bullish. We're all looking at kind of a steady eddy kind of move up. Fundamentals are stressed by all of us. The world's not getting safer. The uncertainty is increasing. The volatility is increasing. Throwing out here for the listeners that maybe we can get this thing going viral. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, but it'd be nice. Richard Fisher, president of the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank, yeah, that guy owns a million dollars in gold and about a thousand acres of farmland. And he's with the Fed. So what does that tell you? I mean, you could put that in the title. Federal Reserve, oh Richard Fisher, president of Dallas, owns a million dollars or more in gold. What does that say? Well, that says a lot is what it says. But again, I'm stressing it probably too much. And what I want to stress, I think, Alice, is that you know people understand the fiat system. They understand the banking cabal. And they get these things. And so they get the idea that like that's the only place to be. Hey, I am way overweighted in the precious metals. But it's my profession, and I can live with it. But a lot of people, rather than allocate, say, 10 or even 20% in the metals, decide that like that's the only place. And you know what? For most people, you're better off just diversifying with 10 or 20% at the most and taking the rest of the money and doing whatever you are good at, building your business, getting a further education, getting into maybe some income real estate, maybe looking at the 3D printing market. I mean, there's lots of opportunities still, even in the economic conditions that we live under. There's always somebody, you know, there's a bright spot somewhere and you can find them. So I would just give that caveat because what I hear most often is that, geez, I believe the silver and gold story and I put practically everything I have into it at the wrong time. If you're a long-term bull, the best thing to do is build a savings program around your portfolio and rebalance every year. If you have 10% to the metals and the metals go down and you rebalance every January and you find that that's not 5% of your portfolio, what you can do is sell what's up and reallocate that cash into more gold or silver or both and balance it back to where you're at 10%. It's a system taught by Perry Brown. It's called the permanent portfolio. It's actually brilliant in its simplicity. It's a good way to take a long-term investor mindset that will help you do well in the longer term. How does one subscribe to the Morgan Report? Just get on the website, themorganreport.com. Get on our free e-letter alert that comes out every Saturday. You kind of get the style of how we write. And then there's three levels of service. The basic for kind of long-term buy-and-hold investors. Then the one with the uh, special service that pops up on your desktop is available for not that much more. And that's where I go through and provide all these videos of the shows that I do where they allow us to take. More importantly, on the mining trips, it's like you can be an armchair mining expert more 
more or less by watching some of these videos that are put out by us on these trips that we make. So you get a pretty good feel for not only the company, but your kind of boots on the ground. So we provide that. I don't know who else in the industry, industry does that. And then finally, for really strongly invested people, mostly fund managers are very high net worth people. We have the Mastermind Series, and that's kind of a special situation, and that's fairly expensive, and we don't have many on that, but we do get some very exciting guests on there. I just had a floor trader from the exchange on yesterday, and it was quite fascinating what he had to say about the Japanese debt market and the gold. David, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you. I've been speaking with David Morgan of TheMorganReport.com. You can listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, EllisMartinReport.com. Go to the website right now. EllisMartinReport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Paul Mlajenovic, the raving capitalist, certified planner, national speaker, and author of Stock Investing for Dummies, Micro Entrepreneurship for Dummies, The Unofficial Guide to Picking Stocks, Precious Metals Investing for Dummies, and Zero Cost Marketing, which is available on ZeroCostMarketing.net. Paul, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's good to be back again. I enjoyed the last session, even though it wasn't a great topic, if you recall, on healthcare and such. We'll move on, my friend. You know what's interesting about that is we have a sponsor company on the program involved in healthcare services, and that sector is doing very well as a whole. Although many are not entirely in favor of Obamacare, it seems to be working out very well for a variety of businesses in the healthcare sector. What are your thoughts? Well, here's the thing. I know for a lot of my clients and students, I, I generally tell them to uh, stay away from things such as uh, subsections of the healthcare industry. Like, for example, many sections of the healthcare industry work fine. People forget that it's a sector, but it's a mixed sector. There's some things that are cyclical about it, some things that are defensive about it. I tell my clients and students and leaders to stay away from the healthcare financial section, like the healthcare insurers, because there's too much of a question mark there. And the thing is, because a lot of these things change the dynamics of the healthcare industry, me, those companies that help add value in terms of keeping costs down or whatever, a lot of those things are not going to change. In other words, people such as your sponsor and a lot of other companies out there, in some respects, the dynamics of the industry now are helping them versus hurting them. So we'll see about the entire sector in due course. But uh, as I've told people, look, now more than ever, in spite of what you see with the stock market, as long as they stick to companies that have a solid offering, expanding client base, and expanding market share, and making it profitable, then they should be in healthcare or otherwise. Exactly. And I was specifically referring to some healthcare providers in the business of providing excellent service to their clientele. I believe it's been about two years since we last chatted, Paul. Let me ask you a question. Did you see the strife in connection with Russia and the Ukraine and Putin's alleged involvement coming? The thing about him is that whether you agree with him or not agree with him, he's a confident, assertive leader. He will stand up with Russia. And the thing that hurt them the most has been, of course, the oil collapse. And then you had the other side of it with the ruble falling apart as well. I think that's going to make countries like theirs just a little bit more dangerous. The thing is that our country seems to be strong on the world scene in spite of itself. Because, I mean, we're fortunate that we've had a very mature market system and it has a lot of things in place to keep it strong. But the thing is, is that among the things that, you know, are on the horizon that's going to be a challenge for us is the fact that Russia and China do see themselves as in an adversarial position, both economically and otherwise. So they're going to keep on trying to make the moves to make themselves certainly stronger. I know that Putin is eyeing the resources of the Ukraine. I know maybe not on your program, but on separate programs, I had made the prediction that you're going to start seeing more resource wars that are out there. I mean, right now we live in historic times when currencies are being overproduced at a record level. And the thing with the U.S. dollar is that it's had the life of Riley being the reserve currency, so it's given it some advantages versus other currencies. If it wasn't a reserve currency, you would have seen a crisis happening much like 
in like Argentina or places like Venezuela. So we're lucky from that regard. But that doesn't mean that other countries aren't gunning to reach parity as a competing reserve currency the way China wants to do with the yuan. So we're going to start seeing more geopolitical crises out there. They're seeing that our leadership is generally weak. That's certainly their perception, whether it's true or not. They're going to see it that way. So they're going to start making more moves. And I feel that the aggressive moves are going to start heightening a lot of tensions. And in return, that's going to have a lot of impact on our financial markets as well. So we have to keep on watching that. With oil, that's definitely had great harm to the Russian economy because they have a huge component of it. That's the resource area. That's why they keep on building up their gold reserves, but they keep on having difficulty getting in cash because of the falling oil revenue. We as an economy are going to benefit from oil prices, so it's definitely going to have a good economic impact. And overall, it's not a bad thing to our stock market, but the real problem is going to be how many companies in this sector have been over leveraged and they won't be able to maintain or service their debt because of their falling revenue. So you might see like a mini crisis here that's going to end up whipsawing. So there's a lot of concerns for 2015. It's going to be a more volatile year than usual, Dallas. Staying with Russia for a few minutes, do you think the collapse in oil and then the contraction of the ruble is a direct result of actions in the Ukraine, or were those financial hits in play anyway? Look, even before these crises came along, and I think this is only going to fuel his desire to expand his power and greatly increase Russia's reach. You will not forget that you know, he, he was a part of the KGB when it was the Soviet Union, so there's a lot of eyeing of these other venues. They want to start slowly rebuilding that particular empire. So I think more tensions are going to be happening, and the question is, to what extent will we be reporting it? The American media can be very fickle. I mean, you'll, you'll see more stories about things going on with footballs that are underinflated versus conflicts and causes of the globe that's going to end up biting us later on. In spite of all the predictions that experts and analysts were making a couple of years ago, the dollar seems to be undefeatable. Exactly, but I think this is the time that those in your audience that are the speculator types, I mean, it's probably not a bad time to start putting your toe in the water to be more bearish. Nobody has an indefinite bull market. And the thing is that as our enemies start to shift away and more and more countries and international trade starts to shift away and diversify away from the dollar, that's going to be the Achilles heel for it. Uh, At this point, for those people who have dollars denominated assets, like, for example, you know, one of the star performers of 2014 was, of course, the ETF that was tied to the dollar. It's done very well. Some of my clients have that definitely. Now it's time to put on things like trailing stops because we don't know when the turnaround is going to start occurring. This year could very well be it. So we'll have to wait to see. I'll ask you this then, Paul. With all that going on, are gold and silver a safe haven or not? I think it's a safe haven in the ultimate sense because obviously gold and silver has never gone to zero and it's outlived thousands of currencies since ancient times. And the current crop of currencies out there are just as weak as before. They might be more sophisticated in its implementation and we're in a technical world, etc. But I would start accumulating gold and silver to be a hedge away from paper assets. I think what people have to realize is that, especially after 2008, maybe even more so the next few years, is that probably one of the great risks that people are really ignoring is the idea of counterparty risk. I know sometimes you have uh, one of my favorites on your program, which is David Morgan. I know he's had a conversation or two touching on this topic, and the thing is, gold and silver are among the very few investments on the investing and speculative landscape don't have a counterparty risk. In other words, there's no debtor or promise on the other side of owning it. So physical gold and silver are not a bad thing to get into right now, and a lot of great quality stocks to uh, look into. And I think that the next leg, the next up leg of uh, gold and silver during 2015, during 2015, 16, and 2017, I think looks more than realistic. I'm very bullish about their prospects, actually. 
Do you think that's going to happen this year? It's very possible, and I think to a great extent, part of the reason why is that you start seeing a loosening of controls. You're seeing decentralization going on. You're seeing more commodities and metals markets opening up in places like Shanghai and Dubai and these other venues. So I think things like that start to loosen the ability to control a particular marketplace. And so I think that I will not be surprised if we see a crisis, you know, in IMEX comics in the next few years. And I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if you start seeing more and more discovery where the red flags go up and all people all of a sudden start to see the actual shortages and supply and demand could easily pick up gold and silver to even higher than what I'm presuming. These things, unfortunately, uh, a lot of these decisions happen behind closed doors, so you don't know when the dam is going to break. For me, it's not a question of if these things are going to happen. The question is when. Could it happen this year? Hey, after what's happened in the last three years, I think this is as good a year as any. But the speculators out there, I mean, right now, there are options on gold and silver that have like a two-year time frame. So those are not bad speculations. And there's still some quality mid-tier and top-tier gold and silver stocks if they want to be patient about it. But some kind of position, I think, is going to be handsomely rewarded to those people who start seeing these as buying opportunities. During the last bull run with the highs that were realized, still less than 1% of investment dollars went into gold. Therefore, most of the general investing public has not necessarily been burned by it. When a larger percentage of investors get into gold, it could go parabolic. Is that not correct? I think so. You have more investors than back at the last bull market, and they become more and more aware. And let's face it, rising prices, they make their own news, and then people start to gravitate like moths to a flame. I think when the public starts uh, piling in, you could probably guess it as well as I do, that those are times when you start planning your exits, but we're still a long way away from that. I'm on board with some observers who have been looking at it, and some industry insiders who see the potential for, like, say, gold being in five digits. That may sound like out there, but if somebody told you that the Swiss rank was going to be skyrocketing by 30 or 40% in a single day, they would have thought you were crazy. And that kind of mechanism in place, that kind of dynamic, when you have like a volcanic eruption after being suppressed or managed after a while, well, I think will definitely happen with gold and silver. So I think I heard one analyst say that he sees uh, that silver has the outside chance of uh, being in the 500 area. Well, we've seen so many unusual, crazy things in the last 5, 10 years. I wouldn't entirely count that out, that kind of scenario. The point is to be bullish and be in those things that can survive some of the volatility and paper assets are going to start having some major cracks in it, whether they're currencies or the financial assets, certainly bonds, and will show their cracks as well. You were seeing it in Europe, having to be a, a contagion, a ripple effect, I think that's uh, more than a possibility. So, yeah, so definitely, I'd be diversified into metals going forward. And now, when the world, see, that's just when you look at stuff. When the rest of the world is poo-pooing it or ignoring it, that's when you're looking at it. That's what the contrarian does. So I would definitely seek some type of position there. Let's segue back to oil. For a variety of reasons, some of which we've discussed, there's been a huge reduction in the price of oil. Do you think ultimately this will have a positive effect upon the U.S. economy? I think you stated earlier that it would. In general, yes, I consider it a big plus. I mean, how many consumers and businesses want to be able to get by just to meet their budgets? And I know if, uh, if people are paying half as much for gas or less in utility bills and how many uh, trucking firms, etc., could use a break you know, for their transportation costs, this is like a tax cut, and that's definitely a, a big plus for the U.S. economy. The negatives, well, it's, it's really quite interesting. This is where I start to tell people, people saying, you know, are there buying opportunities in this sector? I mean, because oil will stabilize. 
we don't have an unlimited supply uh, in spite of what's happening with shale oil. And I think that people who are looking to uh, get back in and see buying opportunities, I would probably wait a quarter or two until you start seeing the financials of a lot of firms. Those firms which are not overextended with liability on their balance sheets and are still making a profit at these levels and paying a good dividend, I think those are buying opportunities. Whereas other companies, you're going to have the situation happening during this quarter and the second quarter of 2015 where the famous phrase by Warren Buffett comes into play, that when the tide rolls out, you'll see who's naked or not. So when the data comes in, we'll find out which firms out there are going to be struggling and potentially, uh, you know, facing bankruptcy if they're not careful or get debt restructuring. You'll see both shorting opportunities and buying opportunities simultaneously in the same sector during the first half of 2015. And again, some great pluses for the economy, and we'll probably see some crises internationally. How many countries out there like a Russia and like a Saudi Arabia made their wealth through this? So I think part of the negative impact of these lower oil prices is that some of these countries are going to get maybe desperate and aggressive. Meanwhile, some of the movements in the Middle East that's been funded by high oil, there's going to be a pinch there as well. And how are they going to react? So there's an incredible mix of both good and bad that we have to watch out for during the first half of this year to find out where are the opportunities and where are the risks. Looking ahead to the balance of 2015 after discussing all that we have, let's take a look at some possible investment avenues. What are a few smart things that we can do with our money? First of all, with the stock market where it is right now, they're going to hear a lot of talk among the pundits out there about where they think that stocks are going to go. I can find some excellent commentators who think that the Dow is going to power its way even higher. I heard one fellow say 31,000, and I hear others saying that's going to be hitting below 10,000. So for me, this is a good time. I feel that the best way to mitigate this is to, first of all, take a look at all the positions in your portfolio and ask yourself, like one of my favorite things, and I've mentioned this, and we're in the age that I'm make sure that all the stocks I have are quality stocks. And among the things that I point out as a quality stock is that, first of all, you have to make sure that you're invested in things that are tied to human needs, like food, water, beverage, utilities, etc. And these are the general sectors that I would like to see people shift into. Right now, people are going for a lot of speculative things out there, like some of the uh, internet stocks, etc. Maybe some high tech, maybe some energy. And there are some pitfalls there. So I would look at a company, see the last three years if their sales have been expanding, see if their dividends have been expanding, make sure they're paying dividends. So basically defensive stocks that are paying a dividend, that they are listed on the New York Stock Exchange because there's too many companies out there because the New York Stock Exchange, there they have minimal reporting requirements and minimal levels of financial strength. So they can start off there so that filters out a lot of companies out there that don't have that financial strength. Three years of profits, three years of growing sales, three years of rising dividends, and there's some great ones out there. One of my favorite ETFs out there, and again, I only say this, that you should be speaking with your financial advisors about this. Alrighty. There's one ETF I like that has a symbol HDV. And again, this is one you have to discuss with your financial advisors. It's not a recommendation. I'm giving you that as an example, as an educational example of an ETF that I like. They only invest in a broad section of stocks that have rising dividends for 10 years or longer. And most of those stocks are human need stocks. So I think that's a great place to go. Start accruing your cash for both opportunities and for potential rainy days. Not enough people have an emergency fund. So they should have at least, like, say, three months worth of gross living expenses in cash at a bare minimum. Get some gold and silver. Make sure it's like, say, gold eagles or Canadian maple leaves, whether they're gold or silver, and make sure they're the physical, that they're in your possession, okay? Reduce your debt. Try to become as self-sufficient as possible. Like, one of the reasons I call myself a raving capitalist is because not only do I want to see people do passive wealth building, but I'd love to see people do active wealth building, where they pick up, say, a part-time business on the side, where they can start generating income and become much more self-sufficient. If they stick to being self-sufficient and accumulating more of the quality assets out there, I think they're going to survive the next few years very well. And in addition to paying off debt, which is always a good idea, 
restrict the amount of things you buy on credit, correct? Absolutely. And I think maybe now is a good time for all those who have a good credit rating. Why not get yourself secured with a line of credit that you could access? And again, you, you won't have to pay for it until you use it. But it's always good to be qualified for that now before some of the problems with the general credit market start to unfold. By the way, if they're going to be doing education, they have to go to kale for here as well because there's a real bubble out there. It's a college bubble. A trillion dollars in college debt. Any of those people who have kids going into high school, there's lots of alternative education, which is a lot cheaper because there's going to be a lot of pitfalls with the people who can't pay off their college debt. So there's going to be some real problems and activities the next few years, but the more self-sufficient you know, those within the sound of a voice are, the better off they're going to be. Paul, how do our listeners find you to ask you questions and follow what you're doing? Well, there you are most welcome to visit my main site, ravencapitalist.com, and there's contact information there as well. Anybody who uh, emails me and they said, I'm a listener of Ellis Martin, I will give them attention immediately anyway, but uh, I'd be most pleased if that happened. Yeah, definitely, at ravencapitalist.com. Paul, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. I hope you make it a sensational year, my friend, you and all your listeners. I've been speaking with the raving capitalist, Paul Majenovic. His website is ravingcapitalist.com. Subscribe free to the Prosperity Alert and get free wealth-building reports. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. Getting hungry? Eat knowledge. Find it at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Thanks for joining me. I'm glad that you can be here. It's a good place to be. In order for any venture or project to be successful, ultimately, all parties must benefit. All relationships must be mutually beneficial. This almost always assures success. Again, a mutually beneficial relationship where all parties' needs are met almost always assures success. This is not only true for this program, but for most agreements and relationships in life. Ponder that for a while. Puzzle on it. Look at those business relationships you may be involved in right now and acknowledge those that work and those that don't. The relationships that do not seem to gel are perhaps those that are a bit one-sided, with no mutual benefit. Agreements can often be adjusted to achieve mutual benefit, though, so don't be too hasty to eliminate potentially solid partnerships that could, but do not currently exist. Work on those to achieve parity before discarding them. The logic of that is simple. Often it is better to work with a known quantity, attempting to improve upon it before starting from complete scratch. You give yourself a built-in head start on new successes. You give those that you have been working with an opportunity to improve upon their methods, opening previously untaken avenues of wealth and success building. With a renewed sense of vigor and team effort, the recovery rate from a temporary loss can be great. It is savored best by enjoying it with those we have worked with for quite some time. This is true, providing that all parties have a positive attitude and are keyed for new successes. I'm attempting to make the point here that before we throw away some of our best assets, or people, let's make sure that we've exhausted the possibilities of mutual benefit first. Just because some of us may be experiencing a bit of anxiety right now does not necessarily mean that it is time to sabotage our successes, therefore making our deepest fears come true. If all of our business leaders, large and small, were to believe that there is real cause for unbounded financial conservatism, then they will anxiously predict their own demise on a large scale. We can't let that happen. We need to make adjustments as business leaders, certainly beneficial adjustments. We must not stop serving our customers' needs. We must continue to take care of those vendors and those on our payroll that supply our needs. We must keep commerce in play. Life is not completely predictable, not at all. One of the ways that we are able to improve upon the quality of our lives is that unpredictability. 
Through some of the adaptations made in adversity, mankind's greatest achievements have been realized. That actually is how our country has been built, as a reaction to the needs of its people and the needs of the world. Those visionaries that can actually forecast viable market trends, those with perseverance and resources to sustain themselves, are the most prepared to meet these untold potential adversities. This is logical. Future market conditions and trends can be predicted not with prognostication, but by being educated as to the causes and effects of actions and reactions. By becoming educated, one becomes prepared. Preparation breeds confidence, which then overcomes fear. Fear exists often because of an overwhelming sense of unknown outcome due to a lack of education. No action is taken when the sense of fear keeps us from moving. The best solution, again, to overcome fear is education. The more you know, the more you can logically predict, even perhaps account for, perceived and so-called unknown variables. The more the variables are identified, the more they can be figured into the equation. Having mastered these proven theories and actualities, those of us involved in commerce, those involved in leadership roles in our society, can lead others to success with confidence in mutually beneficial relationships. What would happen if we were more active as a culture than reactive? What would we look like then as a nation, as a people? How can we bring this home to our own personal needs? I'm Ellis Martin. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. This is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.